Thank you, praise band. What an awesome, awesome song. Wasn't that a great song? Boy, it's a privilege to be here. Um, I've known Steve uh, for about 16 years, and and I think I'm getting really old because I almost forgot that I did that family camp about 12 years ago. So I didn't even think about that, actually. And uh, and so what a privilege to be here. Boy, it's just awesome to see what God has done. I came to this church when it was being built, actually, and uh, it was quite a bit smaller. And, um, you know, the thing I remember about Steve was not his preaching as much as his worship leading. Now, I asked the Saturday night crowd, has Steve led worship here? Has he actually led worship? Yes? No? No? I, I... Anyway, what I remember about Steve is him playing the guitar. And at the time, College Park was looking for a worship leader, so Steve actually stepped in for a short period of time. And I remember that we'd been looking for a church for about seven years, and we finally found it. And, and I remember that time where Steve led worship, and it was so simple and beautiful. And uh, sometimes worship is sweetest when it's just simplest. And so, what a great memory. Well, let's continue on with worshiping our Lord and Savior by going to prayer. If you'd pray with me just for a moment. Father, I, I'm thank, thankful that you've brought me here today and that you've brought us here today by this divinely orchestrated moment. This moment that we just sang about where your spirit has created a unified body of Christ. And what an amazing miracle that is. And Lord, our heart's desire this morning is, first of all, that, that this auditorium would be feel, filled with the presence of your holiness. Lord, we, we cannot orchestrate that in terms of orders of worship, in terms of styles of music. And so, Lord, what we want this morning is what man cannot manufacture. And that is that we see and that we taste and we get a small glimpse of your glory this morning. We just sang that you would speak to us in your word. And that's what now I ask that you would do through me, that your name would be magnified and that you would be honored and that we would leave here today changed people. I would ask God that the power of your word shake the very foundation of our being. Your word has the power to penetrate, to cut, and to open, and to expose the very intentions of our heart. And it cannot happen by any other means other than your word preached and the power of your spirit. So I ask now, God, that you would change us. I pray that I would leave here different today. And I pray that all those that are attending today would leave here today differently. And that our lives would bring you glory, especially in the area of relationships. So now, God, I ask that you would fill me with your spirit. And that you would allow us to hear your voice. May I decrease and may you increase and fill this auditorium with a train of your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, our text this morning is found in Matthew 5. So if you're not there, turn there to Matthew 5. And as you might guess from the slide, we are talking about murder this morning. And I want you to know, first of all, starting right off, that, that, that uh, Steve did not ask me to preach this message. Okay, so this is not sort of a plan uh, to, to uh, deal with some sort of a major issue in the church. I have no idea if what we are going to be talking about today is an issue or not. 
But uh, since the Lord called me into ministry 12 years ago, I have had the, the most incredible highs, the sweetest time of my life. And I've also had the lowest lows of my life. And I think when, when relationships are well and, and things are going good in the church, it's so sweet. But yet when relationships go sour and there begins to be division and factions in the church, it's, it's incredibly heart-wrenching. How many of you have experienced both? In your heart, in your lifetime. Well, it's not really supposed to be negative, but it does happen that way. And um, God is not pleased when the fact that we don't get along. And I want to draw your attention to Proverbs six sixteen through 19, an incredible passage that really lays out some foundational truths for us. And, and uh, the proverb, writer of Proverbs says there are six things which the Lord hates. And by the way, God does hate. We tell our children not to hate, but there are things that we should hate. The Lord hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Now, clearly, God hates all sin. Uh, because all sin is worthy of death, and, and that's what Christ died for. But there are certain things that, as you see in that scripture, that God considers an abomination. In other words, a special reproach, a, a very repugnant type of sin, something that he really, really despises. And these are, are, are an abomination to him. Why? Why these in particular? I know he says he hates divorce, but these are abomination. Why? Because these verses in context would suggest that these are the sins that we commit that bring such a breach of relationship in the body of Christ. And what a tragedy when Christ died and, and, and gave us the gospel that two might become one in one accord. And so we're designed by the rebirth to be one But sometimes we're not one, we are more than one, sometimes we are two separate parties. So these verses are really all about what we do to each other. And it's an interesting verse because because of the structure, and I want to draw your attention to a couple of items. First of all, notice how the list begins in verse, by the way, don't let the six and the seven throw you off. That's sort of a a numeric formula that, that expresses emphasis. So all the passages up to this point, this is sort of a crescendo over what the Lord wants to draw our attention to. But I want you to notice the list is headed up by haughty eyes. And that would describe, if we look at haughty eyes in Proverbs and see it in a couple of other verses, we would know that what God is describing here is prideful, arrogant hearts. Prideful, arrogant hearts. And the fact that it comes first in the list suggests that pride is the root of all bad relationships. In fact, pride is the root of all sin. It can always be traced back to what I want. Hopefully you're familiar with James chapter 4, where James says, you fight and quarrel among you, and there's a reason for this, because there's lustful pleasures, lustful desires in your heart that continually um, strive after wanting to be experienced and fulfilled. So really... The heart of all broken relationships, the heart of all sin, starts with selfishness. 
Satan brought the whole kingdom down in a sense when he said, I will, five times out of Isaiah. And so we know we're in trouble when it's all about us. And our society is telling us it's all about you. You come into church and God's word says, no, no, it's all about us. Not I or me. It's about us and our, our father who art in heaven. Give us this day. So even that prayer is suggesting that we are to be one as a group. So pride starts the list, but notice how it ends up. It ends up with the phrase that it leads to spreading strife among brothers. And so what the writer wants us to see is that this passage and all of these sins lead from one tragic sin of pride and selfishness and self-centeredness, but it brings disunity, and that is an abomination to God. I don't think there's anything more attractive to the world when the body of Christ is one. That's how they know we're his true disciples and nothing more distasteful when we're not one. Now, there's one more detail I want to bring out before we move on to our passage. There's one sin that's repeated twice. Which one is it? Can you tell? It's the sins of the tongue, right? Speech. And so that would suggest to us That the evil use of the tongue is what God evidently sees as the greatest contributor to disunity in the church. Starts with pride, works its way to division and strife among the body. And two times it says that that comes about by the evil use of the tongue. I experienced this in a a real unique way last summer. Um, uh, Peru, have you ever been to Peru Circus Week? And, oh, that's really discouraging. That's supposedly the greatest thing on earth. I don't think it is, but that's what we say. And so I'm downtown, and we had a family that left our church, um, not in a good way, under church discipline. We were never able to resolve the issue. And I was with a very young, impressionable teen, and we were working the booth, and we were moving with some stuff around. And I happened to see this couple off to the side, so I walked up, and I said, hey, so-and-so, how are you doing? And they just stared at me. And so I know the young man that was with me was kind of freaked out a little bit. That wasn't anything. So I walked away. We went to grab something. And the wife came up to me out of nowhere. And she says, Jim Butler, you are the son of the devil. Just angry and bitter. And I thought this, I thought I had to pick up this young man off the ground. He was shocked. He had no idea that Christians could carry such bitterness and anger in their hearts. And so it was kind of tough trying to explain to him why this happens. And so it was quite a lesson, and I'm, I'm not so sure he ever really got over it. It was a tragic thing. But we experienced those things, and, and what an incredibly bad testimony that was. I felt so bad. Well, hopefully you're in your Bibles um, in Matthew. Um, and I chose this uh, passage because I've been going through a basic series in my church And this seemed to have a tremendous impact on our body, so I was hoping that it might on yours. And um, I I don't know whether you're angry this morning. How many of you are angry? You won't raise your hands anyway. Oh, maybe a couple. Um, we got to be transparent in the church, right? And uh, I think we can all relate to this passage, unfortunately. I can. I know you can. And um, so, anyway, I'm hoping the Lord speaks to us in a very unique way. 
Now, our passage falls at the beginning of a very famous sermon that we all are probably familiar with. We've heard that's the Sermon on the Mount. And um, the backdrop to this, we kind of look at the Sermon on the Mount and we go, it's so, it's so pretty. It's blessed are those, you know, and they give us the Beatitudes, which are sweet. But really the backdrop of this sermon is not very sweet. In fact, it's spiritually toxic. If we'd look through the sermon, we'd say Jesus kept saying, you've heard it said. You've heard it said. And who he's talking to here is the audience. As crowds came around him, we always had the Pharisees and the scribes kind of lurking in the background listening to Jesus. If you notice so many of the passages, they're kind of back there kind of listening. And they're listening to what he's saying. And so much of this sermon, he is speaking to them. It's really a striking rebuke to Judaism because they had fallen into such grave error. I mean, Judaism, the Jews were God's elect people, and I believe they still are. And I think they're going to be, um, um, once again, become a nation. Well, they're already kind of a nation. But once again, they're going to be in Jerusalem near the end of the time. And there's going to be a special time of blessing. But they had fallen into error because they had rejected God's word as their sole authority. And what had happened is they had replaced God's word, put God's word under their laws and their traditions. And we have massive denominations today that have done just that, where they have rejected God's authority, they've rejected the word of God, and they have put their own laws, they put their own traditions in place of God's word. Well, that has tragic results because inevitably what happens is it draws our focus and our attention on the outward. On what we can see rather than the internal and, and, and of the heart. Count on it when, when it's not really the Bible and it's not really God's word. You have to substitute substance with, with memorials or, or with tradition or with outward performance. So the heart of religion is things you can see, activity. And the heart of Christianity is the heart. Where our attitude is, where it starts. And so that's what Jesus is trying to do here. He's, the thrust of it is that he's trying to show what righteousness really looks like. And so again, this is a little bit of a, the backdrop of this is not pretty. He's rebuking the Jews in particular. And he wants to show that real true Christianity is really about the heart, not just about physical activity. Are you with me? So that's, the, that's sort of the backdrop here. Verse 21, he says, You have heard that the ancients were told that you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now, Jesus did, just as he often does, he kind of has a hook. And when he's dealing with, with the Pharisees in particular, he uses this hook and he says something and gets them on board so that they would agree. And so at this moment here, he's saying and, and quoting what their ancients say. Now, ancients were basically um, a group of people, uh, the scribes, the Pharisees, the rabbis. Those are the people that they highly respected. So the ancients are nothing more than their spiritual leaders, okay? Now, at this point, here's what they're doing. Or you can guess this is what they're doing. They're in the back going, yep, absolutely, he's right. They're agreeing with Jesus at this point, which is kind of unique. They understood that murder was a serious crime. And they also understood that it was punishable by death. And they were quite convinced that they were innocent of all murder. Which they were physically, at least at this point. But starting in verse 22, 
Jesus, as he so often does, turns from what we think where he, we think he's going to a different place. And he begins to turn his focus from the external to the internal. And here's what he does. At the same time, he begins to redefine what real righteousness is. And this is a message for us too. look at verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Jesus here took their standard of righteousness, their comfort level, and absolutely shattered it. And he's revealing here what real righteousness is. Now, he might be doing the same thing to us this morning because so often we sort of measure our righteousness by the horrible sins that we know others commit, don't we? Oh, well, they've committed adultery. I've never done that. You know, they actually stole from a bank or they did some sort of serious crime and I've never done that. And we, if we're honest about it, we have this sort of pharisaical bent to look at ourselves as superior to others because they've committed some horrible sin that we would never think of, never think of doing. So we may think that we're doing good by not murdering somebody and that's good. I hope nobody's murdered anybody here. But Jesus is teaching us something much deeper here. He's telling us, telling the Pharisees, telling the scribes, that even if we haven't actually committed murder, we're just as guilty if we had committed murder, if we are sitting here this morning harboring bitter and angry feelings toward each other. Now, friends, that is sobering. We normally don't put the sins of the attitude in with such sins of crimes like murder and rape. We typically just don't think of those sins as that serious. I, when my, the second time my wife has heard this message, and she's probably getting real tired of it actually, but nevertheless, as we were talking about on the way home last night, she goes, you know, I just don't think of those kind of sins as that serious. We have to understand that a thought minus the glory of God is cosmic treason. And so these little sins that we don't think much of are really, really important things. I don't know if you've followed the news recently. Um, a guy by the name of Jeff Bettinger um, in Toledo, Ohio, just killed his stepson. I knew him. He was in high school. I can picture him. Tall, lanky guy with dark hair. Very nice guy, at least at the time. Proclaiming to be a Christian, just murdered his stepson. Then he fled to Indiana. And I was thinking about that crime. And I was like, oh, that is, and it is. And it's absolutely horrible. But what Jesus is telling us is that there is a moral sin that is worthy of just as much punishment. And that is anger in the heart. Shocking, isn't it? Shocking. And I don't know how many of you are angry. I'm not angry today. Today I'm not. I have been angry. And so if you're angry, if, if right now you're angry with a spouse or maybe a bad divorce or you're angry with your children or you're angry with somebody in this body, you are a murderer morally. You never know who you might be sitting next to. We've probably all murdered. 
We've probably all at some point committed in God's eyes a crime worthy of death. That's exactly what the Apostle John tells us about hatred. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So John confirms that hating each other is a moral equivalent to murder. By the way, sometimes we remove the biblical vocabulary. And I don't think we should because God put, put this particular illustration in the Bible for a very, very good reason. And I'm encouraging our body that when somebody starts to gossip or malign or speak of hatred of somebody else, stop and say, don't murder anybody. What would that do if we started using that vocabulary? I know it's not pleasant, and I know in our sort of seeker-sensitive, modern-age church, that's just not a positive illustration, but it's a biblical one. It's an inspired one, and God puts these in there, and they're designed to shock us. So if someone starts to gossip or malign or, or talk about anger with somebody else, maybe the thing we should do is go, wait a minute, stop. We're not going to murder anybody. Do you know we're killing them spiritually? Well, I think that would stop, don't you? If you went to say something and somebody said, wait a minute, I'm not going to murder. Wouldn't that have a tendency to have an impact? So maybe we should use that vocabulary because the Bible sometimes has shocking images to help us to see the seriousness of what God wants us to know. So what does this look like? I mean, I mean, how does it actually look and manifest itself in our lives? Jesus lays out three different ways that we kill each other. First of all, as we've already talked about, hatred, or another way of stating it, would be anger. He says in verse 22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Now, let me say first of all that not all anger is wrong. Um, there is an anger that's appropriate. I think the church isn't angry enough. How about that one? I have to encourage Steve to do a series on how to be angry. But it's true. And, and Romans tells us, um, chapter 12, I think verse 9, where it says, Gen- Let love be genuine, hate what is evil, and cling to what is good. God hates, we should hate. So there's a, there's a form of anger, by the way, that I, I think we should be more so of. And that is when God is dishonored, when the gospel is dishonored, it should create a fury of anger righteously, righteous indignation in the heart of a Christian. If I would say something as awful as this about your spouse, your spouse is really, really ugly. Dog ugly. What would you say? Well, you shouldn't show anger because it's a sin, but you'd, you'd naturally want to defend that. There'd be something rise up in you. Why? Because you love your spouse. And if we really love Christ and we really love his glory and we really love the gospel, things that, that, that contradict that we should, we should be angry at. So there's a righteous anger. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. This is an anger that we possess when somebody has offended us. Righteous anger is when God has been offended. And we're angry on his behalf. This is when somebody has hurt us. The Greek word for anger here is orgidzo. 
And it's an interesting word. It's never used for a violent act or something that you can see. It's always used for that kind of angerness, that bitterness that kind of boils under the surface where nobody can see. So Jesus is telling us that if, we, if we're here today and, and there's, a, there's a boiling resentment under the surface of our sort of Christian face, we're guilty of murder. And that's a serious charge. It's this sort of smoldering bitterness that we kind of nurture. Sort of a perverted thing that we kind of hold on to because in a sick sort of way, we sort of enjoy being angry because they deserve it. Right? That's what we do. So this word uh, in the Greek would suggest not a violent outward act that people can see, but an inward act of the heart. Maybe here's some evidences that you might be able to evaluate your own life as to whether you have fallen into this or gizzo anger. When, when the person's name comes up in conversation, what do you feel? I can see the thought bubbles. You've all got somebody in mind. Aren't you really glad we don't have real thought bubbles? It'd be a dangerous world, wouldn't it? I'd hate to see yours right now, but nevertheless. So we have these thought bubbles and you have somebody in mind that you have been angry with. And so how do you know you have this sort of seething anger? Because when their name comes up, you get kind of angry. Or this one. I live in Peru, a small town. I bump into everybody that I've been angry with and they're angry with me. I hate to even go to the store. And when you see them at a distance, what do you think? Well, we typically kind of go down the other aisle, don't we? I tried that and it didn't work real well because they, they came up to me. I tried to ignore it. But what happens in your heart? How about this one? How many of you do Facebook? There's a whole sermon series on the Christian etiquette of Facebook. Have you ever been clicked off as a friend? Sure you have. You've had some sort of a spat with somebody and all of a sudden, oh, I'm no longer their friend. Well, that honks me off. Okay, you could be experiencing this orgizo anger, this this bitterness. Um, sometimes, let's just be honest, when we hear about them, we hear somebody talking about them and we kind of listen and we're wondering how they're doing. And deep down, we're kind of hoping that they're suffering. Because surely God would bring judgment on them for offending me. Right. So that happens. Or you gossip about them, and every time their name comes up, you complain about them. That's a sign that you are bitter. Can't say anything good about them at all. That shows that we're in bitterness. So this sort of seething anger is tantamount to murder, spiritually. Secondly, Jesus now begins to trace the anger from the heart. Where does the anger go from the heart? Normally doesn't go to the fist. Where does it go? Goes to the lips. So he's tracing this as it becomes more apparent in the life. Heart, heart anger usually moves to its lips. And so B, we see that sometimes we murder others by petty insults. By petty insults. Verse 22. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, you good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Raka was a common name calling in the first century, and it was pretty insulting. Some of your versions have just Raka. Some of them have uh, an interpretation that's added by the translators. NASB, of course, is you good for nothing. I don't think that's a good translation because it really doesn't describe what it's really saying in the original language. Raka comes from an Aramaic term, and it means empty-headed. 
Okay? So it'd be tantamount to saying, excuse me for saying this, you stupid, you airhead. That's sort of like what they were doing in the Greek. Now, kids, um, listen, I don't want you going home and calling your brothers raka, and then nobody knowing what that means. All right? Or you adults. All right? We can't do that because you can go around going, you raka, and walk away, and nobody would ever know what you meant. But God knows. Right? So here, here's what, this is what's shocking about this verse. These are just petty insults. This was not a condemning, slanderous, uh, hugely bad remark. It's just sort of an insult. Sometimes that comes through sarcasm. Be careful of sarcasm because typically behind that is something sort of negative. So these petty insults make us moral murderers. Finally, as Jesus traces the progression of this anger, this murderous attitude, he then comes to the third expression of it and that is when we slander others and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell raka was offensive of and sort of petty but to call someone a fool biblically speaking is very very condemning fool in proverbs would describe those who are wicked and obstinate towards god so here's what Jesus is teaching us when we are condemning of others character and we're calling them ungodly and we're making inappropriate slanderous judgments on their lives. Jesus is telling us something very, very shocking. Let this set in. He's telling us that if we do that, we're worthy of the fiery hell. Really? Thank God for grace. Even Christians calling their brothers and slandering their brothers. When we do that, that's such a crime in God's eyes that, that, that we're liable and guilty of eternal damnation if it weren't for the blood of Christ. Wow, that's just, that's just powerful stuff. That is important stuff. The Lord wants us to see here that sin takes a certain path and it digresses. Digresses. If we start out with anger in our heart when nobody can see it, eventually we will be throwing out insults and eventually we will be slandering them. Have you ever experienced that in church? I've had people when they've gone sour in a ministry and, and I, you see it physically. They'll be down here and they'll be talking a lot. Then pretty soon they'll be in the back. Pretty soon they won't hardly come in. But inevitably what goes with that is slanderous remarks. And that does not please God. That's an abomination to God. So, again, I don't know whether you have that problem. Um, I don't know how big it is. I don't know if it's much in the church. But Jesus is telling us this morning that we've got to be really, really careful of that. David describes this sort of tongue lashing as uh, tongues as a serpent. Poison of a viper is under their lips. How many of you are really godly and watch the Discovery Channel? Yes? Um, you got to get past the 10 billion years of, you know, whatever. But they do show cool stuff about God's creation. And I was watching this one show, and this one guy was trying to capture spitting um, vipers. And he was about 10 feet back, and he had these glasses. And this snake has the unreal ability to spit venom in the eyes of whoever their victim is. 
<laughs> the guy, it was a good thing I had glasses on because this thing would go like that and it just spit, go right, in, right smack dab in the eye. It was amazing how accurate it was. That's the way David sees slanderous speech. That's not a pretty picture. So obviously our Lord is trying to tell us something pretty clear. He, stop killing one another. If you have anger, put it away. And there's another reason that we need to put anger away that may even be bigger. And that is number two, our worship is affected. Look at verse 23. Therefore, and therefore is, why is therefore, therefore, there? Therefore is going back to what was previous. So therefore, meaning if you have an anger in your heart and you are bitter and you are slandering and you are gossiping, if you are doing that and if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering uh, there um, before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Jesus is reminding of of this really, really, really important truth. And that is broken relationships make our worship unacceptable. So we can come to church and we can sing all the right songs and be moved of tears and, and look like we're worshiping Jesus and say Jesus. And if we have anger in our heart and we have bitterness in our heart, it means nothing to God. He doesn't receive our worship. Over and over and over again, he told Israel when they were in sin, put away all your gifts and all your offerings and all your worship because you are detestable to me. Um, you know, today we're, we have this constant preoccupation with trying to make Jesus interesting. And churches have all kinds of philosophies. We'll take him off his throne, put blue jeans on him, make him cool, and the world will love Jesus. We've gone everything from doing strobe lights to candles Different types of order of service. We've experimented with all kinds of things to make, to make worship, corporate worship, effective and powerful and moving. It could be that what Jesus is showing us in this text is maybe it has nothing to do with form and style. Maybe it has everything to do with sin. That when people come in, we can't experience the real uplift of genuine Christ worship. I think that's what he's telling us here. We have to understand this according to what the first century worshiper would be, would have understood it. And that is they would bring a sacrifice. Here's the picture. They would bring a sacrifice on the day of atonement, which was a day of forgiveness. They bring their sacrifice. They put their hand on the animal, which would mean they were identifying with that sacrifice. They'd give that sacrifice to the priest and the priest would slit its throat and kill it and, and do what they did. So here's the picture that the first century Jew would have gotten from this passage. Is that while they're coming to God saying, oh God, forgive me. They're in a sense hypocrites because they're not forgiving their brother. That's hypocrisy. And nobody else knows when we come and worship in hypocrisy but God. He knows. Don't forget, he sees into the heart. He knows when we walk into this building. He knows before we walk into this building what we're really like. Worship, then, while we have unresolved conflict, is repulsive to God. Do you mind if I use an illustration that's a little repulsive? Have you ever noticed when the people love dogs and, and so the dog comes up and they bend down and go, no, you know, they all have that little language. You know how they do that and the dog licks their face? Well, what happens if that dog has been eating stuff in the grass? 
In case you didn't get that, that's poo-poo. We've had that happen. Somebody came up to me last night and goes, oh, you've been at my house. <laughs> it's repulsive. You go, oh, it's, a, ooh, what is that? Oh, our dog you know, likes to eat his stuff. <laughs> I'm wondering if that's the picture that we can sort of get with God is that we're trying to worship him and we stink. And he goes, I can't have anything to do with that. That's pretty important. Because we gather to worship Christ. And we want it to be real. We want him praised. And we want him honored. And we can come in secret anger and in bitterness. And been been slandering people. And gossip about people all all week long. And we come. And it's cold. And God says, you have poopy breath. I will not receive your worship. One last thought, then I'll close. I want you to notice in this passage that our responsibility goes beyond how we feel about our brothers and sisters. Maybe we're not the ones angry. Now, this is hard. This is real hard because in our minds we say, well, I'm not angry, so I can go to worship. But I want you to notice what it says here, that if, if, if somebody has something against us, Go and be reconciled. That's the seriousness of this passage. So here's what the Lord expects of us. Before we come to worship, we should seek reconciliation regardless of who is at fault. That is very, very hard. The first century church then pictures for us how immediate and serious they were about love and unity And oneness of the body. And we should be aggressive. We should be eager. And we should be desiring to set things right. I don't know how many will be here next Sunday. If we took this serious. Steve might come back to an empty church. I don't think so. But you never know. So here's your call. If you're bitter or angry. Or you know of somebody that that has anger against you and you've not addressed it, there's only so much we can do. Romans tells us that as far as it depends on us, make it right before you come back to worship. Get right with your brother because only when we're right with our brothers and sisters are we really right with God. What a message to the church. Stop murdering. If that's what you're involved in. Father, we thank you that you, God, have given us this passage. Thank you for giving us the truth. And Lord, I, I pray that no one this morning, because of this message, have become angry. Lord, we have we sung and we've asked desperately for you to speak to us. And you have. And may we be a people of love. And may we get our relationships right, God, before we come worship. Because we want you to be honored and praised and receive our worship when our hearts are right. May you change my heart this morning and the heart of Bethel Church as we leave here. May we go out and live obediently in a life that pleases you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.